Hey folks, I'm Alex Dowd. And I'm Katie Rife. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about a trio of films you can watch from home on your couch. The first is Sea Fever. That's a new sci-fi horror movie with some timely anxiety, one would say. And the other two are films that were recently in theaters, and they are now available to watch at home as well. That's The Way Back, starring Ben Affleck as an alcoholic basketball coach. And Bloodshot, starring Vin Diesel as a nano-powered superhero. New movies. What a fun novelty. Welcome to Film Club. So, Katie, the last few weeks on Film Club, uh, we've kind of broken format a little bit. Mm-hmm. We are, uh, at people listening at home probably know at this point, we are recording this remotely. We are not in the AV Club studio. We are sitting in our respective apartments and <laughs> recording this remotely. And that's allowed us to try some different things with the show. You know, we, we talked recently about uh, the F Cinema Score. Yep. We talked about what all of this is going to mean for the future of the film industry. We piloted a new AV Club feature called The Premise Dome, where we pitted a couple Premise movies Dome. against each other. <laughs> but, you know, the sort of bread and butter of Film Club has always been talking about movies. And this week we are going to do that, for real. Um, we're just going to talk about some new films you can watch. There's obviously nothing coming to theaters right now. Theaters across the country and across a lot of the world, honestly, are, are closed. But what is, what's still happening is uh, distributors are releasing films to watch at home. But yeah, so we're going to talk about a few today, uh, starting with Sea Fever. Now, this is a, 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 sci- a sort of modestly budgeted sci-fi horror movie that was on the festival circuit last year. You saw it at Fantastic Fest, is that right? Yeah, I saw this at Fantastic Fest last year. That's right. Um, yeah. Afternoon screening with uh, Tasha Robinson, who was a former AV Club writer. Uh, So the film is set primarily on this Irish fishing boat. And uh, our main character, uh, played by Hermione Corfield, is this graduate student who has basically, they've allowed her to join them on this expedition. They're going out to to do some fishing. And she's sort of along for the ride. She's this sort of hard-bitten pragmatist. Uh, We meet her in the opening scene. She's like working on her thesis project or something. And there's there's a birthday celebration happening in the other room. And her instructor comes in and says, why don't you come join in? And she says, I don't do join. In. <laughs> yeah, she's, um, I would argue that the character might be, I, I'm not sure of the director's intent here, but I would argue that the character could almost be seen as non-neurotypical because she is, she does have such problems with um, social, socializing and social situations and just kind of dealing with people. I think that that is one interpretation you could make of the character. And adding to that, once she gets to the fishing boat, uh, this is brought up several times throughout the film, there's a superstition that redheads are bad luck on the boat. That's right. And so not only is she difficult to relate to, or she has difficulty relating to others, but a lot of the crew members don't want her there in the first place because they believe this superstition about red hair. Right. And, and and so much as there's a dramatic conflict in this film beyond the um, the sci-fi horror stuff that happens, the movie does kind of pit her pragmatism against their, I don't know, one might say their humanity. I mean, they definitely act in the way that maybe you and I might act in this situation. She sort of reproaches it all with this kind of scientific remove. Um, mm-hmm. And that becomes part of the conflict. So at a certain point early on, the ship basically encounters this underwater creature. Uh, it's sort of squid-like, and it, it has these tendrils, and it attaches itself to the boat. And through that encounter, a parasite basically gets aboard the ship. Yeah. 
I did enjoy the scene where they do encounter the creature because just for scale, this is like bigger than the biggest giant squid that you've ever seen. So the basic idea is that this tentacle kind of shoots up from the bottom of the sea and latches itself under the side of the boat and the boat stops with a big shiver. And then you look out and you see it's because it's stuck to this suction cup type thing that stuck to a absolutely gigantic tentacle which i thought was kind of cool i thought the, I, I think the effects are a little primitive i will say um, sure. I, I, in conception i think that's a cool idea i think the, it doesn't look entirely um I'm, I'm fairly forgiving about effects in low budget films so i say this wasn't a huge this didn't rip me out of the film necessarily mm-hmm. but this is obviously this is a modestly budgeted production i think and the effects are not uh state-of-the-art yeah i i agree that you have to you have to take budget into consideration when you're critiquing uh you know particularly digital effects in a movie well and sometimes there can be something kind of charmingly lo-fi about them occasionally mm-hmm. you know I, I don't think this is one that bites off more than it can chew so to speak sometimes you'll see a low-budget movie that is attempting to do much much more than it can actually do on the on the budget that it has effects wise yeah like um did you see the last phantasm movie i did phantasm not ravager that's a great example of it. They really shot for the moon on that one. Uh, <laughs> didn't have the effects. It, didn't uh, have the budget for it. They just didn't have the budget to create whole post-apocalyptic cities. It was just not working. It's <laughs> always very sad. Um, yeah, it is a little bit. <laughs> but, I mean, what's fortunate here is that beyond the... And you kind of need the money shots of the creature. I, I think people would feel cheated if we didn't get to see what this thing looked like. But mm-hmm. for most of the movie... The threat is damn near microscopic, you know, right. because it's it's a parasite, basically. There's one uh, phenomenally creepy moment, uh, because, I mean, the thing about the, the, the parasite is the way that you can spot it is you shine a flashlight in somebody's eyes, and mm-hmm. it will reveal itself. Yeah, um, it looks like a tadpole swimming inside your eyes. Totally. Uh, it is. It's very creepy, um, and I have an eye phobia. I really don't like... Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, I don't... People. This must have been a tough one for you, Dad. Well, I found those moments squeezy, certainly. Um, I yeah. hate, uh, like, uh, I hate I. One of the most upsetting things I've ever seen is that shot in, in Zombie, in the 1979 Zombie. Dude, that's what I was thinking of when you said eye phobia. I was like, you can't watch Fulci movies, like, at all. <laughs> There's a lot of really horrible. I mean, that, that one has the famous shot of that splinter of wood just gouging mm-hmm. that woman's eye out. And I hate that stuff. Um, yeah. I don't even wear contact lens because I don't like things touching my eye. But um, Oh, wow. I don't know. My thing is hands. I don't know why, but, like, hand trauma really bothers oh, me a lot. So, like, people, like, like in Syriana or something when Clooney's getting his nails yeah. ripped off. Yeah, yeah, like when someone gets their hand crushed, you know. Oh, well, there's there's a hand crush scene in this, too. Yeah. Actually, a guy does get his hand crushed in this. There's just something about that that really bothers me a lot. Or um, the degloving scene in Gerald's game is very upsetting. (laughs) I think it's upsetting even if you don't have a, like, even if it's not a thing that bothers you specifically, it's an upsetting scene. But that one was, wow, that was tough. For sure. Now, um, it's kind of impossible to look at a film like this um, and not see the kind of shadow of other movies. Yeah. There's a little bit of Alien in the setup. I mean, down to the fact that most of the the people on on the boat are these kind of salt of the earth. Each is sort of an archetype of similar types to Alien, where they are different sort of shades of the same sort of like future. Well, not futuristic here. An alien is futuristic, but sort of like working class hero. Yeah, they're, they're, they're blue collar. You know, in, in mm-hmm, Alien, they're mm-hmm. basically truck drivers. You know, they're like intergalactic right, exactly. truck drivers. 
and in this they're fishermen mostly you know um I, we should say that the cast also includes uh doug ray scott you might remember mm-hmm. from mission impossible 2 <laughs> uh he's the villain in that and uh also connie nielsen she, yeah, she's from wonder woman that's right and she's the captain mm-hmm. of the ship so uh, again you watch this and it's it's impossible not to think of alien not to think of the thing you found it sort of aggressively derivative in that respect. There was one scene in particular, there's a lot I like about this movie, but there was one scene in particular that was so close to the source material that I found it kind of disappointing. And it's specifically like, I mean, you pretty much every sci-fi, not every, but a lot of sci-fi movies that came after Alien, oh, it did to Alien. That's yes. just a true fact. And it's the same for The Thing. You know, they're both hugely influential films. But this one borrowed a specific concept from the thing, and I thought that was a little too much for my taste. Um, should I say, or are we trying to stay completely spoiler-free here? <laughs> um, I think I know what you mean. I will just say that there is a variation on the blood test scene from, yes. from the thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the blood test yeah. scene. Well, here's the thing, though. I agree with you that those that, that stuff is, is very obviously imprinted on this, that you, this thing wears its influences on its sleeve in that respect. Mm-hmm. There's even there's a, there's a dinner table scene, too, after they've been exposed, where I was like, oh, they're de- this is definitely going to turn into the chestbuster scene from Alien, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. It doesn't quite do that, but I-, I think there's even a sense maybe that the movie knows our familiarity with that and is kind of playing on it a little bit. Maybe I'm giving it too much credit thinking that, mm, that we're like, that's interesting. we see them all seated around a table, they're laughing, they've already been exposed. We're like, oh yeah, this is definitely going to turn into that. And it sort of works the suspense with that, maybe. But I found myself thinking that I wish that this actually, if this thing was actually imitating Alien and the the Thing a little bit more, it might actually be a little bit more exciting. In what way? I guess what I mean is that this movie does not embrace the the sheer sort of gross intensity of those those films. I, okay. This is one of those cases where I'm sort of, I feel this way all the time doing this job, honestly, where I feel myself sort of uh, torn about whether or not I like this quality about it or not. Um, mm. Because I actually think that the movie's kind of, for maybe lack of a better term, it's sort of meat and potatoes realism is actually kind of one of its more interesting qualities. Yeah, I agree with that, actually. Yeah. Because it's not a film that ever, like, this is not an, an utterly ludicrous movie, you know? Like, the, no. the characters behave in, in ways that feel credible, that, that there are no enormous plot holes necessarily. It feels, and in some ways, it, it it's not a super sensational treatment of, of this idea. On the other hand, if it did kind of lean into the monster movie qualities a little bit more, I think it might be a little bit more exciting because this is not a terribly gripping film, I guess I would say. Sure. Well, you know, then you start running up against what we were talking about with the effects earlier is like, you know, the rip-roaring monster stuff. I, my first thought is like, oh, okay. So like a scene where like somebody's chasing somebody around the boat. Maybe the monster's chasing them in, but, you know, maybe if you have a low budget, you're trying to avoid that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, but the film also doesn't play up the paranoia in the way in the way it does mm. in The Thing. Um, I mean, there is some conflict. Again, I think the most interesting stretch of the movie is the one that now looks the most maybe disturbingly topical. There, There is a stretch of the movie where the, our main character, who again has been established as this kind of... Um, this rigorously scientific pragmatist basically says we've been exposed we can't once we get back to shore we cannot dock and we have to stay on the boat we have to stay quarantined totally and everybody on the boat is like fuck that i'm i want to get off (laughs) like i'm gonna go home and she's (laughs) like you don't understand like if these parasites get to other people this thing could spread very very fast so 
very topical in that moment, I have to say. Um, yeah, yeah, that part in particular, this whole movie, you know, I'm I'm sure that no one would call it lucking out, but it is a little bit eerie how, because like I said, I saw this last September, how topical it became all of a sudden. Totally. <laughs> I mean, we're going to see a lot of, from here, I think we're going to see a lot of movies that uh, are being made after all of this is over that are like deliberately evoking all of this this is one mm-hmm. of those accidental cases where something that was made before ended up keying into an anxiety that we're now all experiencing but i do think that the movie could have played up the paranoia of who is infected or not a little bit more you talk about the, the test scene from the thing mm-hmm. the version of it that happens in this film is uh, i will say not quite as suspenseful <laughs> No, it's not as dramatic. No. I mean, that's something that's interesting, you know, because like I I get what you're saying and it's a valid point. But one thing that I kind of enjoyed about the film is, again, perhaps I'm ascribing intention where it was not necessarily. But I felt like the way that it is a little bit cold, the movie kind of matches the temperament of the lead. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. 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 The movie is sort of in in alignment with her perspective. Right, exactly. Yeah, interesting. Um, anyway, it's a, you know, it's it's a, it's a solid time at the movies. Um, I don't think it, it rises to the level of the films that it is emulating. But then mm-hmm. again, we're talking, when you're talking about Alien and the Thing, that's a high level to reach. Yeah, perhaps not a future classic, but it really is eerily prescient for the situation we're in today. So if you like genre films, I would uh, recommend giving it a watch. So if Sea Fever is probably not a a new classic of the genre, I I feel Mm -hmm. very confident in saying that Bloodshot is definitely not a new classic of of the genre. No, if it's going to be a new classic of any sort, it's going to be a new bad movie night favorite. I don't necessarily condone bad movie nights, but, you know, a lot of reasons. But, uh, yeah, this movie, as a recently outed Olympus Has Fallen fan, I thought this movie was so stupid, but I kind of liked it anyway. <laughs> See, but it's so stupid. It's a particular kind of stupid, though, because it is. It's it's um it's the kind of stupid that thinks it's clever. Yes, it's the kind of stupid yes. that thinks it's smart. <laughs> yes, which is actually one of the most grating kinds. Yes. You know, there's like there's. There's smart acting dumb, and then there's dumb acting smart, and this one is definitely the latter one. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, without going too much into it, that's because it's got a big meta sort of framing to it. Yeah, I mean, we should probably... I don't know. I'm not sure if we should try to tiptoe around that or if we should just talk about it, because it is 100% the most interesting thing about the film. But It is absolutely the most interesting thing about the film, but I don't... Yeah, I don't know, because when I watched it, I didn't know that was coming, and I cackled out loud in my living room. <laughs> yeah. By myself, I was like, ah, they did that! I was just, like, laughing. Yeah. <laughs> so the film stars Vin Diesel. Uh, it's... It's his latest star vehicle, and uh, he basically plays a soldier who is resurrected. Uh, he's uh, killed and then resurrected as, uh, well, I mean, more or less, as a superhero. He has... As, uh, the, 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 I mean, obviously you're not going to look to a film like Bloodshot for, you know, realistic science. You know, it's not hard sci-fi or anything, but what? The, the mechanics of how he works makes no sense to me. So... They've replaced his blood and his brain and every part of him with like little tiny robots. Yet somehow he's the same guy with the same personality. That makes no sense. <laughs> well, um, 
you could uh, you could argue that the the film is making the case that his all of that information has been uh, well. You know what? That is. Are you ma- saying Bloodshot advocates for the existence of a soul? <laughs> I guess I'm. No, I don't think I'm saying that. I, I guess. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is that they maybe find a way to actually preserve his memories in some way. And, okay. And, you know, one could say that what are we but our memories? Maybe. Sure. I don't know how they're doing that. I mean, again, this is the type of thing where <laughs> you do not want to think too hard about the science of it. No, definitely don't, because even the most surface of que- don't ask any questions at all actually because even just a surface question of like what how does that work just really just threw me off the thing is Real the bad, thing will so. collapse like a house of cards if you focus on that absolutely stuff, yeah. any questions whatsoever not even hard or deep questions <laughs> that's right um the film is based on a comic book from the 90s uh from valiant from, from that mm-hmm. from that comic book comp- company which i gotta say i grew up reading comics i never really much dipped into valiant yeah i'm not familiar with valiant either i very vaguely remember bloodshot as probably a character i saw calling out to me from the cover of of various issues in the comic book store he in, in a lot of ways having done a little research before i reviewed this film officially for the site he seems to represent sort of the uh like somebody like Deadpool or Cable, he sort of epitomizes the '90s as uh, yes a period when comic book characters were there was this there was kind of this arms race to make to see who had the most extreme character, you know? Yeah, he's definitely like, and I think the movie reflects that. Like, this is definitely like a Mountain Dew extreme kind of movie. <laughs> yes. It is very much on that wavelength. So I yeah I ended up reading the first few issues of this book like the the initial run I found them online and not a great comic I have to say maybe it gets better mm-hmm. um, but uh, he is not a very interesting character I will say that the movie uh, makes some tweaks to his backstory in the comics he's like a mob hitman who dies okay. and is is brought back he has no memory of who he was this takes a slightly different route again he's a soldier in this film who's brought back yeah well they really lean into the soldier aspect of it you know like um this is all set up we're not giving too much away there's some other sort of super soldiers at the facility where they create bloodshot and there's a scene where they go through each one of them and they're all and they all mention where they served right yeah that there is a big element of that Mm -hmm. he's brought back in this lab and uh, his handler uh slash mad scientist is guy pierce and he basically Go ahead. He's referred to as Marvel Hand in my notes. Marvel Hand? <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> he's got an MCU sort of robot. Yeah, yeah, he does. Diesel's character, uh, his name's Ray Garrison. He basically is pressed into service working for this government agency of some sort, this shadowy organization that works out of a large lab. Um, you know, and another really 90s thing about this movie is how obvious its CGI is. It really, you know, showboats in some areas, you know, where you watch... Uh, bloodshot regenerate before people's eyes and I think like a lot of 90s action movies that CGI is going to age very poorly very quickly yeah it's funny that we were talking earlier about about the fact that sea fever sort of recognizes its limitations and doesn't ask too much of its limited effects budget this is a movie that I think probably asks too much of its effects budget at times because yeah. this is not a this is not a top of the line triple A you know action spectacular. No, it did not spend no, a ton they, of money on this thing. 
No, but there are still action sequences that are, you know, m- not fully animated, but close. Yeah. there. This is a twisty film in some respects. Yeah, in some respects. Yeah. We kind of alluded to it at the top of the review. But yeah, there's a reveal towards the end of the first act that I will say at the very, it's probably the most clever thing about the film. Yeah. That particular reveal at least excuses how generic a lot of the first act plays. Well, that's what I was going to say is I was just really, I was watching this and just thinking, this is, you know, they're really trying to out Bay Michael Bay here. And I don't think they're doing a very good job. It's just like, it looked like, a, you know, a, an army recruitment commercial bled into a, you know, travel ad for cruises in Italy. And then it, and then it bled into sort of like a knockoff Marvel movie. And I was just really confused almost, I guess, by how generic it was. And so I will give the movie a little bit of credit for the laugh I got when I found out the backstory. Well, and there, there's there's a very cliche moment early on. The villain has, uh, this is like before he's been resurrected, and the villain has kidnapped him and his wife, and they're, they're in this kind of grungy underground torture lair and yeah like a meat freezer with all these sides of beef totally and the villain uh sort of dances in to psycho killer to the song Mm -hmm. psycho killer and he has this anton shigur like gas powered bolt stunner and i'm thinking watching it like am i really watching this like the level of cliche that i'm seeing on display here but right exactly to the movie's credit it does uh, come up with a um, a fairly clever explanation for its cliches. Um, mm-hmm. I would then say, however, that it just piles more cliches on top of that. Yeah, that's the problem with Bloodshot is that it starts out incredibly cliche. And even after they bring him back to life initially in the first act, uh, they rely pretty heavily on um, another really cliche trope, which is amnesia. And then it gets briefly clever for a minute in the middle there. But by the time they get to the end, it's swung all the way back around into just really goofy, bombastic, generic, cliched action movie stuff. But you enjoyed this movie. Well, I don't mind really. The more, the bigger and goofier, the better. <laughs> I, not saying it's good. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, honestly, I didn't hate it either. Um Come on. Despite its limit, it's, it's 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 bad in a lot of respects. Um, I <laughs> sort of enjoyed its cliches. There were aspects I, I liked. Um, it was nice to see Lamorne Morris from New Girl plays Winston on mm-hmm. New Girl. He's sort of playing the the quirky antisocial um, coding whiz in this film mm-hmm. with a British accent. So it was kind of fun to see him in such a stock role. He's clearly having a little bit of fun with it. Um, yeah. He reminded me of Kumail Nanjiani in the most recent uh, Men in Black movie where they were given sort of a thankless sidekick cliched role, but they they had a good time with it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like the, okay, we need some comic relief because this uh, Mm -hmm. otherwise this is a almost completely humorless movie. Right. Uh, In in the sense that it's so humorless. um, I believe I talked about this when we did the premise dome. I think of them as like chest beating silverback gorilla movies where they're so serious about how manly they are. And that's inherently hilarious to me. For for sure. (laughs) And Diesel is kind of perfect for that. I mean, I I do think it's um, one of the things that I I found. And this, this is a case. Of, I think we talked about this recently that occasionally you, as a critic, you'll find your mind wandering to, to aspects that aren't necessarily prominent 
in order in order to kind of get you through a bad movie. Yeah, Ignati talks about this a lot yeah. when he's reviewing a bad movie. Exactly. Yeah. He'll like he'll, he he gets so focused on background <laughs> details <laughs> and like what what kind of books are on character shelves, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I find myself increasingly drawn to this idea of a star text. And um, these are especially, uh, I think this is especially prominent in modern action cinema, where the movie ends up functioning in some way, intentionally or unintentionally, as as kind of a commentary on the career of the star of the film. A good recent example would be that Will Smith vehicle that came out last year, the Ang Lee film, Gemini Man, which I I think that is definitely most interesting as a film about... Will Smith confronting the fact that he's now middle-aged and his star power has waned. One of the saving graces of the later Terminator sequels, I think, are that all of them are about, at least in some sense, about Schwarzenegger grappling with the fact that he's no longer this perfect human specimen anymore. Right, uh, And sure. that's, like, baked right into the movie. It, it was... Um, it's interesting you bring up Terminator, because mm. that was... Um, I, felt, I thought about Terminator watching this movie unfavorably, actually. Mm. Because one of the things about Bloodshot is that now that he's, you know, back from the dead or whatever, he's basically invincible. He's a supercomputer and the world's toughest man all wrapped into one. And I find that to be really boring. Yeah. You know, like if you want to have a perfect killing machine, make the perfect killing machine the villain like they do in the Terminator movie. Totally. Yep. Yep. That's uh, that's definitely true. It, it, it's something that I think about, like one of the smarter choices. Speaking of another comic book adaptation or a couple of them. One of the smarter choices that James Mangold made in both of his Wolverine movies is making is actually making Wolverine vulnerable, like Mm -hmm. compromising his his healing system. So suddenly we're there's actually a chance that he might lose a fight. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, there's very little chance of that in Bloodshot. Like Diesel is basically can regenerate limbs. He, He 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 is more or less unkillable in the film. And that is pretty boring. Yeah. But I do think the film works as a star text to some degree because it, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of its plot, which again we won't completely disclose, but it, it at least becomes partially about the idea of some of of a soldier you you can keep rebooting, um, and you can keep dropping into the same scenario, and that to me that is a little bit that that sort of describes v, uh, Vin Diesel's career as an action hero. And that mm-hmm. there's not a ton of variation in in his performances, at least. I mean, you put him in different contexts, you know. But is there a huge difference between Dominic Toretto and the character he's playing here? Not really. Not really, you know, just sort of the framework around it in that he, in this one he's, you know, fully invincible. Right, exactly. Yeah. But mm-hmm. he's still, he's driven by loyal. I mean, there's there's a whole revenge aspect of the film, and he's driven by this loyalty. He feels loyalty is very important to Vin Diesel characters. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, listen, Vin Diesel could be a perfectly nice guy, and I, I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but he doesn't have great range. <laughs> well, there were at least, early in his career, there were at least filmmakers who saw something in him. I mean, sure. um, Steven Spielberg cast him in Saving Private Ryan. Um, That's true. And, That's true. Uh, you know, I mean, again, I'm not sure that was a role that required a ton from him either. But, you know, he, he held his own in that cat in, in that ensemble. Also, he's in a Sidney Lumet movie, you know, like right? Find Me Guilty. Right. So um, there, filmmakers, uh, and, and Boiler Room is another example. That's an early film of his. He's like solid in that, too. I don't think that there's no talent there. I think that. Diesel is one mm. one of those performers who at a certain point decided that what he wanted to do with his career was be an action hero. And 
I actually don't think he's all that interesting as an action hero. I think that he's kind of taken any any aspects of real charisma that, that he had as an actor. He's kind of like tamped down into this sort of monolithic macho-ness, you know? Yeah, totally. And, you know, and like you said, that is similar to the concept of this movie, this sort of like plug and play action hero. Yeah. So if, if Bloodshot is uh, maybe an accidental star text, I have to say that the, the last movie that we're going to talk about today, The Way Back, I think is poss- was possibly conceived as an explicit star text. Yeah, it fully reflects. Um, and I think that that's actually one of the more interesting things about this movie, which otherwise is really leans heavily into cliche. Yeah. So the film, it's called The Way Back. It's uh, directed by Gavin O'Connor, um, who uh, has sort of established himself as the modern Ron Shelton in the sense that he makes mostly sports <laughs> movies. Mm-hmm. I would say mm-hmm. his brand of sports movie is, you know, I've, I've used the expression before, the male weepy. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely one of those. They're definitely mo- movies that are sort of designed to make men cry, you know? <laughs> yes, specifically men cry about man stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say, even as somebody who I, I, I don't care much about sports, um, I think he's pretty good in that lane. I've liked previous films of his well enough. I, I liked mm-hmm. Miracle, his, his hockey film that he made, and, and also Warrior with Tom Hardy and, and Joel Edgerton. I found that very affecting, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, in this one, he casts Ben Affleck as this sort of former... He's, he's like an ex-high school champion basketball player. Right. And uh, he's now middle-aged, and uh, he, he works, I think, in construction at this point. And he has a, a very—he's divorced and has a very serious drinking problem. And he is asked by a, a, a Christian school, the, the, his, his old Christian high school— if he can come mm-hmm. on and coach the boys' basketball team, basically. Yeah, and um, in terms of him being a high school basketball star, you know, it's sort of the end of his high school basketball career was sort of the first in a series of bad decisions that led him to where he is today. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's some very obvious parallels between Affleck um, as a movie star and as a public figure in the character he's playing. Which I I honestly kind of admire it, you know, yeah. because like uh, what, what we've been dancing around is Ben Affleck has had drinking problems of his own. Well, he's been yeah. very open about them recently, actually. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. He's come out and talked about them. And uh, I do think that sort of fortifies his performance in this movie with a certain resonance, you know? Oh, 100%. It gives it, it makes it really believe. Even I think even if you didn't know the star text, that it would still come across believable like he really like there are some very sobering shower beer scenes in this movie yeah. and just physically you know he put on a little weight for the role and stuff like that and just just the way that he plays it he plays it like someone who knows what it's like to be this guy yeah uh, we don't know the extent to which this particular movie mirrors his own struggles with with alcoholism but i would agree that there is a certain verisimilitude to mm. uh to his performance, and uh, again, how much of that is us just coming into it knowing that history. On, on a lighter note, I mean, you know, uh, one of Affleck has sort of become identified. With, there's a particular photo of him on the beach in a towel that people have mm-hmm. dumped. Sad Fleck, and this movie, in some respects, feels like it's like it's like taking the energy that that generated 
and like channeling it towards a sports drama, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. Especially early on in the film when there are some, you know, like I said, some pretty sobering sequences showing his day-to-day routine as an alcoholic. Yeah. You definitely think about, and it's, and uh, in the photo, you can see his tattoos and, you know, the character has tattoos and it, it definitely feels intentional or meta in some way almost. For sure. So, I mean, I found aspects of this movie pretty affecting. Um, a lot of it, the, mm-hmm. the stuff with his struggles with alcoholism. I do have some issues with it, though. I can accept the cliches. I think when you go into a sports drama, I find myself sort of excusing that stuff if it's well executed. Well... I mean, the cliches in this movie go beyond just the the sort of sports narrative, which, you know, is very formulaic. Right. In most sports movies, it's formulaic. And I think that's what the audience wants from a sports movie, you know, is for the underdogs to rise up and stuff like that. People don't want to watch a movie about a bad basketball team that stays bad. People don't want to watch that movie. But beyond that, with some of the family stuff they work in here, it's it was a little it was too much <laughs> to pile that on top of the the formulaic sports storyline was a little too much. And some of the filmmaking uh, underlines the cliches, you know, you have a lot of lens flares and slow motion sequences during the especially dramatic parts. And some of the filmmaking, I felt, uh, reinforced the cliches in a negative way. The score is definitely overbearing as well. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, from the very mm-hmm. start, the movie is hammering us with how melancholy this is. Yeah. Some of it got to me, I'll say. Um, <laughs> I do wish it worked a little bit better as a sports movie. As with Sea Fever, I actually... I find myself once again in the position of wondering, like, if this thing had actually embraced a few more of the hoary, uh, crowd-pleasing cliches of the genre. I'm not sure I would have hated that, because as a sports mm-hmm. movie, it is kind of, it, it, at a certain point, kind of treats that as a little a little incidental. This, this really is about this character and his grappling with alcoholism. Sure. And I, I felt like, yeah, the movie seems to be on a very, on one trajectory, but then it changes trajectory towards the end to be more about him yeah. and his alcoholism. And I yeah. actually found that a little anticlimactic at a certain point. Uh, mm. This mm-hmm. is This is another case also of me feeling conflicted and not being sure if this is something that I think is good for the movie or bad for it, because I do think that the last act of this movie, which I won't discuss in much detail, but the last act of this movie subverts, in some ways, realistically subverts where you think a movie like this might go. Yeah, I admired that, honestly. I... I admired that it did subvert that expectation. I mean, there, yeah, there's a certain point where this character goes over a line that the movie does not act like it can be, he can be pulled back over. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to say anything more. I'm tiptoeing around this, obviously, but <laughs> yeah. but there is a there, the way that this there is nine out of ten versions of this particular movie would engineer a different ending than the one that we get. Well, they would just stay on the trajectory that the film is on for its first hour, or but this or movie at the very kind least, of zigs and zags. It does. I think, or at the very least, they would find a way to uh, get us back on the path of what what yes. we'd expect the end of this movie to be. But the movie, at a certain point, says whatever's happening with this team is not as important on a personal, dramatic level as what's happening with him. And the movie doesn't try to act like... God, I'm really tiptoeing around this. But the movie j- basically does not try to act like there is a way for him to see through what might be a more conventional arc for this kind of story. Does that make sense? Right, I yeah. realize I'm very vague, but yeah. 
Well, funnily enough, in a way that kind of is similar to Bloodshot, you know, some of the stuff at the beginning, you know, when Ben Affleck's character starts coaching the basketball team, there's this moment where he gets caught drinking at a game. And then all of a sudden it's just, you know, snap of the fingers, he's turning his life around. Yeah. And I rem- and I was watching it thinking like, hmm, that's a little easy. For sure. So I'll give the movie credit for subverting that in some ways. But the funny thing about that is... The parts of the film that I found affecting were his relationships with the students. I thought some of the students did a good job in their performances. I just wish that the movie... I mean, I think that you're right that that stuff is actually is pretty strong. I wish we got to see more of the practices. Um, mm. Because, I mean, it is definitely... It sort of falls into that. I'm, I'm the kind of weirdo who when I watch... I, for example, if I watch a movie about an inspirational teacher, I'm always annoyed if we don't actually get scenes in the classroom. Okay. I'm always like, you know, okay, so he made them... He, like, one time had them get up on their desks and that inspired them or something. But, like, what is actually teaching the class like? And yeah. in this, I was like, okay, so he's a good coach. But we're kind of asked to sort of take that. I mean, you know, we'll see him at the games and he'll occasionally give them direction that helps them. But I actually wouldn't would not have minded, even if it meant a slightly longer movie, I would not have minded a few more scenes of him actually being a coach, you know, mm-hmm. because his main role mm-hmm. seems to be that he listens, he, he gets to know the kids and he, he recognizes the talent in them. And he basically is able to see how a team that is not very good could be a better team. But I don't know. I mean, I want more of he, I want more of the nuts and bolts of like putting together a good basketball team, you know? That's interesting because like the thing that I kind of liked was um outside of the team itself, he seems to be have this intuitive ability to recognize what kids need in their life and kind of give it to them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I did laugh also at the scene where he he's just met the team and he's like, oh, they're not very good. And he's like, he's out in the hallway and he looks in and he sees the quiet kid who, the kid on the team who does, he's not, does not have a lot of braggadocio and he is just like dominating by himself. He's like the only one left in practice and he's just like mm-hmm. sinking every shot. He's like, Oh yeah, he's actually good. It's like, oh, that's how easy it is. He just looks in through a window and, <laughs> yeah, and sure. sees how good this kid is. Uh, but there was a small moment that I thought I appreciated the acting um, from the young actor who did this too. the The character who's the um, the star player when Ben Affleck's character arrives, uh, he ends up kicking him off the team, you know, because he's he's just he he's all swagger, you know, he doesn't have anything to back it up, and he goes to his house to try to convince him to let him back on the team and uh, gives him a little bit of, you know, tough love and stuff and sort of chides him for his foul language and things like that. And the look on the kid's face when he's all like, hell yeah. Oh, I'm, I, I mean, heck yeah. <laughs> and then he closes the door and he, you know, kind of shows the crack and he smiles a little bit. I think that was my favorite part of the entire film. I did like that scene too. Um, the actor is Melvin Gregg. He, mm-hmm. He's in the, um, he's in the second season of American Vandal. He plays the, the star athlete in that. He's also oh, in yeah, High Flying that's Bird. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's in Soderbergh's yeah. High Flying Bird as well. He he plays one of our main character, one of the main characters' uh, clients, essentially. I will say another thing that, that kind of bugged me a little bit about the film is that I, I, I watching it, I kind of in in some ways again, I won't completely disclose. This is kind of the older Affleck's version of Manchester by the Sea. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. But, a little bit. It is, isn't it? A kind little of? bit. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yes, it absolutely is. 
There's like shots of boats on the dock, well, dude. The, 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 the environment's <laughs> kind of the same, and he's he's kind of a sad sack, and he has a trauma in his life. I love Manchester by the Sea. It's probably my favorite American movie of the last 10 years. I will say that this movie sort of uses the idea of, of trauma to sort of explain his drinking problem, which I think that does, mm. that, that is a, a maybe a credible rationale for it. But I think a more interesting film might have just... In, in this particular context, it felt a little tidy to me. Yeah. I think a more interesting film might have said there's no particular reason he's an alcoholic. It's, it's any number of things. It's a lot of things in his life. And he just has a drinking problem. And the movie would just have to deal with in a way that, that, the, that there's this trauma that the movie is sort of hiding for a while. Ends up feeling like an excuse for his alcoholism in the sense that it's like, oh, well, that's the explanation when I think it's more interesting to just be like that we're following a character who has a drinking problem and it's fucked up his life, you know? Right. Providing a reason for the drinking problem rather than it just being a problem. Right. Okay, everybody, that's all the time we've got for this week. Sea Fever will be available this Friday for digital rental and Bloodshot and The Way Back are now available for digital purchase. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Film Club wherever you get your podcast. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced by Carl Blumberg, edited by Melissa Lorenz. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode.